Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Father Andrew Mattingly. I am a Catholic priest in Kansas City, Missouri, and this is a podcast where I post homilies and random other stuff that I might teach or speak about. Hope you find something useful and maybe even inspiring. God bless you. Well, just uh, building a little bit from uh, what I preached about last week, enough people mentioned to me that they found the material helpful. If you weren't here, I sort of offered just very briefly last week sort of an overview of kind of church history in terms of uh, the, the, the distinctions that happen at different points in church history and the differences between kind of the general worldview and the principles of the church and the worldview and the principles of society at large and how when those are more or less aligned, uh, we live in what, what at least one author terms a Christendom culture and when the worldview and of the church and the worldview of society at large clash, then we live in what's called an apostolic age. Now there are pros and cons to both of those. Now it's important for us to know that we are on the cusp of entering into an apostolic age, which in Western society, Europe and the United States, this will be the first time that we have been in a fully apostolic age for about 1700 years. So that's for those of you who weren't here last week, but sort of the 30 second summary and, uh, and just how important it is for us to, to know what we're getting into in the years ahead so that we know how to live out the faith well in the culture to which we belong. And since we're still in ordinary time, enough people got benefit from that. And as I went quickly through the readings, this sounds terrible. Nothing really, <laughs> nothing really struck me too hard. Um, could have talked about celibate vocations or something from the second reading, um, but uh, but I thought it'd be good to kind of expand a little bit on the topic from last week. And so I just want to offer all of you from from looking at uh, periods, uh, you know the apostolic age in the early church and kind of other, other times in church history where similar things have, similar characteristics have been seen in society. I wanted to offer you three dangers or pitfalls that uh, believers have gotten themselves into in the past in similar sort of cultures. So with the, with the age that we're entering into, these are three sort of dangers or pitfalls. And, uh, one of these you may feel applies to you in a particular way and the others not. So if the first couple don't, just sort of maybe keep listening. Maybe one of these will strike you as, oh yeah, like that's something I see myself maybe falling into, so I need to kind of be on the lookout for. So the first kind of pitfall, the most sort of generic one, the danger is, is fear and cowardice, right? As we, as we enter an age where we will be pressured in different ways, um, some of us more than others, to compromise our faith, which I mentioned uh, last week, um, our first temptation probably is going to be fear and cowardice, to sort of shy away from, from standing fast in what we know to be true and right and just. Just to give a very simple example of how this may apply to me and some of you, uh, some of you may be aware that there are a couple of bills right now that have kind of bounced around the different um, House of Representatives and Senate for several years, um, but which have a good chance of being enacted into law now um, that would put religious freedom under a severe strain in certain regards. One of these is called 
the Equality Act, the other is called the Do No Harm Act. And just to paint a very simple picture, there are many things that could kind of flow from these laws as they're put into place, which it seems like there's a high likelihood that they will be. One of them, for example, is that it could become punishable as a crime for even, like in a, even in a church, for example, if I were to say something like marriage as an institution is only something that can be entered into by a man and a woman, even that could be characterized as hate speech and could be punishable by law. That's a possible interpretation or, or side effect of these different things that are up for proposal. And so when I kind of think about that, and this isn't something that the church hasn't faced before, right? Like the, sort of the open, open expression of Catholicism has been persecuted at many different points in church history. There are many of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world now for which they're suffering greatly for the faith and there's no freedom to really express their faith openly. So it's nothing new in church history, but when I think about it for myself, yeah, it strikes a little bit of, of fear into me. I wonder if, you know, if I would have the courage to stand fast, if my, my faith were tested in that way, if, if I would be under threat of, you know, being put into prison or, or something worse. Um, and so I think for all of us, and, and uh, you know, these kinds of, of tests are going to become more common, and, and some of you will experience them more profoundly than others, kind of depending upon your positions and, and jobs and society and so on. Um, but all that just to say, our first temptation in this apostolic age is just fear and, and cowardice. And so it's important that, that we, we practice building up the virtue of courage now in all the different ways that are available to us, so that when, when these maybe greater tests come, we build that muscle, right? So a couple simple ways that you can build, build this virtue of courage now. If, you know, if there's a hard conversation that you know you need to have with a family member, a, a spouse, a child, a parent, maybe somebody in your work, um, rather than avoiding it for a long time, to, to have the courage and to ask the Lord for the help to sit down and just, ha just hash it out, just <laughs> sit down and have the conversation. That requires courage. Those are good opportunities to build up that muscle. Right now, for me, um, based on my own temperament, I shy away to an extreme degree from like bodily mortification such as fasting or different penances like cold showers or things like that. For other people, other friends I have, that's like a piece of cake, like they don't, <laughs> like they, it's not hard for them to do. Um, for me, that's really difficult. So that's a very, uh, a great help for me in building up the virtue of courage for myself is to sort of like really push to engage these bodily penances and to offer them up for souls in purgatory or offer them up for for people I'm praying for, whatever it may be. Um, so for you, perhaps that could be a good way to, to build up courage. Um, another simple way to, to practice that muscle now is, is to overcome the fear that we all have, to some extent or another, of being vulnerable with other people, whether that's your spouse or a good friend, to really reveal the fullness of who you are with all your faults and sins and maybe things in the past that you've done or been done to you, right? The more we can kind of overcome our fear of people seeing us for who we really are, the more we'll grow that virtue of courage and the more we'll be ready if the day comes when our faith is put to a more difficult test. So that's the first danger or pitfall. And that, that fear and cowardice kind of regards our stance 
towards society at large, right? The second danger of pitfall I want to mention, which also regards our stance towards society, which is at odds with the general worldview of the church, and will become more at odds with the years that pass. The second thing we want to avoid is closing ourselves off from society and culture. This is a great, great temptation in times when when society and the church are at odds, that we, we have sort of this tendency to just turn in on ourselves and say, you know, just forget about the world, forget about <laughs> all, all these people, these institutions and everything that's out there, just, just forget about it all, I'm just going to do my own, my own thing. The author of the, the book that I mentioned last week called um, From Christendom to Apostolic Age, which there's actually a few copies in the back, um, if anybody would like to to purchase one on their way out on the bookshelf. But the author in there has a really helpful quote in this regard. He says, in an apostolic age, Christians face the temptation to become sectarian. In other words, to sort of like separate themselves off, whether from other believers or from society at large, and sort of form these little little groups. Um, we face the temptation to become sectarian and to abandon the task of engaging and confronting the wider society with the gospel. There can be a tendency to quote, let the rest of the world go to fill in the blank. <laughs> right? That's that's sort of a real temptation in this time that we have to avoid to just say, like, I'm just gonna hunker down and like ignore everything else going on in the world. Like I'm not I'm not even gonna pray for it. I'm just gonna sort of write write it off. I'm going to write off people at my job. I'm going to write off people in my family. I'm going to write off this person in public office and that person and this institution and that institution. I'm going to write it all off, right? They can do what they want. I'm just going to sort of sort of get myself through this difficult time, right? Um, that's not what the Lord wants for us. Particularly for you as laity, the, the kernel of your vocation is to be salt and light in the middle of the world, right in the middle of the world, not to retreat from the world, but to be right in the middle of all of it, continuing to engage the culture as much as you're able with the gospel. And because that becomes more difficult in apostolic age, our tendency is to avoid it um, and to say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna mess with that. This doesn't mean, of course, that we don't need very strong communities, very strong friendships that we turn to, to sort of gain strength. That's different, though, than just saying, I'm not even going to bother with, like, <laughs> trying to still influence society for the good in whatever ways that I can. So that's the second pitfall. The last one that I want to mention um, is something that I don't think is on many people's radar because it, it, it may not seem to fit with kind of prior decades, but I do see as a real possibility on the horizon. And it, it's something that often goes by the name of moral rigorism, moral rigorism. So throughout, what is, well, I'll explain what it is first. What is moral rigorism? So when our Lord came to preach kind of the fullness of the moral life, right? Think of the Sermon on the Mount, when he's like, Moses told you this, but I tell you this, and he raises the bar, right? He fulfills Moses' moral commandments of the Old Covenant, and he raises them to this very high standard. This, the moral standard held out by the Lord in the Gospels is very high. It's very high. He wants us to experience the fullness of union with God, and that is only possible by living a very high moral standard. 
At the same time, the Lord holds out in the Gospels an extremely high standard of mercy, right? And at different points in church history, the way heresies work is that they always emphasize one truth or one side of the coin to the detriment of the other side. That's how heresies function. So they emphasize something that's true and they de-emphasize or deny sort of the opposite side of that truth that keeps things balanced. So what happens in church history when moral rigorism comes around is that maybe you've had a period of moral kind of relaxation in the church where people have been kind of indifferent to the moral life. You know, we've experienced this the past 50, 60, 70 years where people like, do whatever you want, like, the Lord's merciful, you'll get to heaven, right? He'll forgive you. That's sort of a, a heresy in its own right that you can call moral indifferentism, right? And that's something that has been prevalent and is still very prevalent right now. But the danger, and this isn't on many people's radar because we've, we've been in this sort of moral indifferentism for so many decades now, the danger is that we, we swing the pendulum totally to the opposite side. This always happens in history. We never learn. <laughs> We swing the pendulum totally to the opposite side and we re-raise the bar of the moral demands of the gospel, but we forget about the extreme mercy of God. So we begin holding others, this is a stance we adopt towards other members of the church primarily. We begin looking at other members of the church and we say we need to we need to re-raise this moral bar to where it, it properly belongs, right? To be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you, you follow him in all of these areas without, without sort of making accommodations or excuses or things of that sort. And when you fall, you go and you, and you find his mercy. But, but the tendency, if we let the pendulum shift too far, is that we only emphasize the high demands of the, the moral demands of the gospel and we, we sort of begin to diminish and deny the mercy of God. We have to hold both of those always to a high degree, right? Extreme demands, extreme mercy. And throughout church history, after a period of moral relaxation usually, but also in other periods, these moral rigorous heresies have popped up, which have begun to deny aspects of the mercy of God. So for example, in the early church, uh, in the 250s, there was a particularly intense persecution in the city of Rome itself. And many of the Christians, who are sincere believers, just out of fear of torture and death, they denied the faith when they were put to the test. Right? They, they, they apostatized, they denied God, and they were allowed to live. And then a couple years later, when the persecutions relaxed, they were sort of with broken hearts they came back to the church and said, we want to be readmitted to communion with the church. We're sorry for having denied the Lord under pressure. Um, we'll do penance. We want to be readmitted. But there was a priest named Novation, and uh, he sort of gathered with some people around him and said, no, 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 no. Well, once you've committed idolatry, once you've, once you've denied the Lord, there's no forgiveness for you in this life. Right? Maybe, maybe the Lord will have forgiveness for you on your deathbed, but you won't receive forgiveness through the church. Right? So this, this sect grew, this group of people that wanted, quote-unquote, a more pure church. They didn't want to allow for the greatness of God's mercy. That even someone who had denied Him publicly in this way and burned incense to other gods, burned incense to Caesar, they didn't want to allow 
that they could be readmitted to communion with God. No, no, no. God can't be that merciful, right? They're going to sort of taint the church with their, with their public sin. And, and of course, they were eventually condemned as heretics. And, and this happened multiple times throughout church history. And it may not be on our horizon right now, but as we're sort of, we've been in several decades now of a kind of moral laxness regarding the faith, and because we're entering an age where there's going to be increasing pressure from outside on the church, those two things kind of combine to make a cocktail where I would not be surprised if in the near future tendencies like this begin to develop. You can, you can kind of sense it. Those of you who are maybe more present in kind of the Catholic internet world, you'll maybe start to sense a little bit that there's this fracturing of different groups of Catholics that's beginning to develop, some that are claiming to be more, more Catholic than others and not allowing others to sort of like, not giving sort of a stance of mercy to others. Um, a, good way, a good way to test if our heart is in the right place in this regard is to take, you know, somebody who's a historically notorious sinner, for example. Let's take the classic archetype of this, of course, is Hitler. Some of you may or may not know Hitler was baptized Catholic as an infant. Obviously, in his younger years, he, he fell away from the practice of the faith. His mother was Catholic, his father was not. But he fell away from the practice of the faith. Now, if you think to yourself, if Hitler, at the end of World War II, he, he was responsible for the deaths of 12 million people, right? More than that, probably, but at least 12 million people, ruthless, cruel, everything under the sun. If he had a moment of true conversion, but a, a moment where he legitimately repented of all of his sins and said, I have done wrong and I will spend the rest of my life doing penance for what I've done. And think to yourself, maybe, maybe imagine if you lived in that time and you had family members who'd been exterminated in Auschwitz and other places. Maybe you're the only one left of your family. Just imagine to yourself like how quickly, if ever, would you be able to, in your heart, have mercy for him and say like, absolutely, here's one more soul that God wants in heaven who is repenting. Of course the Lord can show him mercy, right? Of course the, Lord, the Lord's mercy is that powerful. If we, would, if we would, in our hearts, deny that to him because of the gravity of his sins, we would be sliding towards this error that has popped up all throughout church history of moral rigorism. Right? Remember St. Faustina in her diary, the Lord tells her at one point, the thing that hurts my heart the most more than any other sin in the whole world is lack of trust in my mercy, lack of belief in my mercy. It says no sin hurts his heart more than that. Right? So we have to make sure as we, as we enter this apostolic age, there's gonna be pressures in the church from the outside. We're sort of moving to a point where the moral indifferentism and relaxation of maybe members of the church, many of them have probably left the church, some of them are still around, but the tension there is going to begin to grow, and we need to make sure that we're always fostering our heart a spirit of unity, a spirit of mercy, a spirit that doesn't sort of splinter into many factions, but we need to make sure that we, we foster that that spirit, otherwise we'd be in a very bad place. Precisely when pressure is placed on the church from the outside is when we most need to be united. It's also when we're greatest at risk of splitting apart. And so that's something very, very important to keep in mind.
as we move into the future. Finally, just as a word of encouragement, this is all dark things, <laughs> dark bad things that, that could happen. Um, but as a word of encouragement, it's just good to remember the Lord's promise that, that He'll always be with us. As lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. So He will never abandon you or I or His church as long as we ourselves do not abandon Him or His church.